This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Well, we can just start if you're okay, sure. If you're all right, got your tea. <laughs> what kind of tea have you got? I've just got a chamomile tea. Chamomile. Mm-hmm. Chamomile or chamomile? Well, I say chamomile. Um, I, my mom would say chamomile. She's uh, she's great. She's right? great. Yeah. yeah. David Tennant does a podcast with. Tina Fey. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, David. Uh, I had the great pleasure of seeing Mean Girls the Musical last yes, night. Yes, you did. Yeah, on Broadway. <laughs> Very exciting. A fantastic show. Thank you so much. You've got a musical on Broadway. Was that like a bucket list thing? Did you it, always... I think it was, yes. Uh, it was for me and for my husband, who's a composer, mm. um, who had written a lot of shows in Chicago. And uh, I had studied playwriting in school. So, yes, I think it was a bucket list thing. So that was, of course, adapted from your own movie. Mm-hmm. Do you see it as your job to be creating the next thing for yourself? It doesn't seem like you wait for people to bring ideas to you. No, I find that it's best if it's come from you, from me, because okay. I'm not what Lauren Michaels would refer to as a piece of casting. I was, you know, auditioned for things as an actor in Chicago and never booked anything, ne- nothing, not commercial, nothing. I'm not easily usable. So I found my way through improv and through yeah. making up our own shows and contributing in that way. And that's how you kind of get to be in it. And But, but now, of course, be, yeah. because of your vast international celebrity. <laughs> Mega brand. Um, then surely you could. You could just wait around and some, uh, wait for someone to offer you Lady Macbeth. or You could. Uh, Did you, you, was that you knocking I was going to knock. I because just, I said Macbeth? Right, isn't that the one you're supposed to knock? Oh. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. If I you laugh know. in the face of superstition. <laughs> Crash. Does that make you, do you get superstitious about things like that? I'm not too superstitious. We know when I, when I was a writer at SNL yeah. uh, and I talked to friends about it later, we all developed weird compulsions and superstitions because so much is out of your control. Right. Uh, that I would have weird things. So on the table read day, I'd get off and I'd have to get off the subway and take a certain path and go around a certain pole. And I thought, this is really getting to me. A bit OCD. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what were we talking about, making our own things versus... Yeah, I mean, now presumably you could just wait for the phone to ring and someone go, hey, you, come and be in this. You could. It that must happen. It, it rings a little bit. It doesn't ring as much as you would think. And I alternate between being fine with that and, and being like, well, I guess my fucking phone is broken. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the times I have done it and gone into something else, and I'm usually like so happy to be there and like don't kind of question enough. And, or th- you know, I certainly would never change another writer's dialogue without being asked to you know right, and right. so and then I think I kind of glide through and it ends up not really being that great like you, you'd be better off so do you think first as a writer or a performer uh, I think first as a writer you do yeah I think so what would it take Princess Leia 
Princess Leia. Yeah. You'd do Princess Leia? I would. I want that out there. Yeah. Yeah. You've not had any call from any of the various Star Wars franchises? No. I'm sure it's going to happen. Um, so tell me what it was like to grow up in Delaware County. It's the largest township in Pennsylvania. So it's not all the way to a city, but it's almost a city. A township is a very township. quaint way of describing it. Yeah. Rural? No, not rural. Right off the, the very edge of West Philadelphia. So that's where you get your Bill Cosby, West Philadelphia. That's where uh-huh. my parents are from. It's okay. where like David Brenner, Will Smith, okay. West Philadelphia, born and raised. The border and then literally a, uh, a park and then across the street from that park is where I grew up. Traditional, a very traditional upbringing? Um, yeah, I would say so. My parents are, my dad's no longer with us. My mom's still around. Um, a Greek-American neighborhood. Uh, How Greek was it? Like, <laughs> I should have a punchline for that. <laughs> How Greek was it? <laughs> a lot of like, you know, food trucks parked in the alley by night, like okay. that kind of Greek. And the Greek Orthodox Church on the corner. Did you attend that? Yes, you okay. attended that. And then I was sort of uh, like the song Half Breed because I was only half Greek. I was sort of exotic in the neighborhood. Right, I see. Do you speak any Greek? So little, very like words here and there. A lot of kids I grew up with went to Greek school, which was like after school, so like Hebrew school kind of thing where they would learn language and culture. Right. And my older brother was made to go. And on the first day he was there, the, the teacher like slapped somebody with a spoon or something. And he was, I'm never going back. Right. So my parents didn't send me. And they didn't force it. They weren't particularly. No. Because no. your dad has a Scottish uh, heritage, yes. I believe. Yes. What's, where from? Um, I'm not sure where from. I think we're Clan Macintosh. Does oh, that yeah, mean yeah. anything? That's a thing. Definitely. Yeah. He was proud of that. You know, we would go to... Uh, kind of a Scottish festivals in Pennsylvania sometimes. But your father sounds like quite an impressive figure. Yes. An imposing figure? Well, uh, Strict. Strict. Yeah. And very, um, it, like Clint Eastwood would have played him in a movie because he was kind of oh, striking, blue-eyed, kind of chiseled okay. guy. Um, we went to college, but um, also like a real autodidact, read a lot, was a painter, taught himself Greek. He did speak Greek. Ah. After he married my mom, he decided he would teach himself Greek. Right. And didn't he raise millions of dollars for all sorts of Yeah, that he causes? worked in in fundraising for universities. So he right. would write these proposals. He worked at the University of Pennsylvania and then he would work at a place called Thomas Jefferson University, which was a medical college. And so he would talk to research doctors and have to understand what they translate, what their research was into documents so that it could be understood by the wealthy as to why they needed to give money. So he's a writer. So did he have a quite a developed social conscience then? Or was it simply that's what he did for a living? If you grow up in a diverse urban environment, which both my parents did, and I feel like they had just an organic consciousness of just like that people are people and you have, you know, it's a, sort of like politically conservative, but socially liberal. Okay. You know, quietly living a very good, correct, open-minded life. Right. But not necessarily but like... Republican. But always voting Republican. Your mother still now? Well, I think so, yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I have said out loud, at least to my husband, that I'm, you know, I miss my dad dearly, but I'm also relieved to, that I don't have to know whether he would have been able to, because he, uh, he, yeah. he for sure would have been disgusted by what a moron Trump is, mm. he, for sure. Okay. So I am glad that I never had to face whether he would have actually voted. Did you develop a social conscience though through them? I think the thing that you get from... Philadelphia, especially, what you have like a bullshit meter. And so I'd like to think that whatever sense I have that kind of cuts through party, 
I'm a registered independent. Okay. I've only ever voted for a Democrat. Right. But I resist the kind of blind ideology of either side. Right. And I think that's culturally beaten into me. Okay. When you were a kid, did you discover the value of making people laugh? Yes, I think so. I think somewhere around 12, 11, okay. you know, coping mechanism with puberty. Yeah, sure. Being smart enough to know like, all right, there's a certain, you could either be like the prettiest, uh-huh. which is out of your hands. Yeah. <laughs> or there's maybe another way of getting in front of yeah. what someone else might say about you or get, you know, trying to get positive attention. It does not really work with boys <laughs> to be like super sarcastic and have them be worried that you're going to take them apart. Verbally. No, maybe not. That's no. disappointing, though, isn't it? No, I mean, maybe it's better. Do you think now. that's changing? Do you think that's shifting? I don't know. Well, you, you presume you've got you've got a daughter. Is she it, she goes to all girls school. Ah, mm-hmm. thank goodness for that. Keep yeah, which I never thought I would. Boys away. I never thought I would ever because I'm a public school kid and feel like you know the world's co-ed and I yeah myself like to you know work in world man male dominated fields but uh, now i i get it i think it's good and was it a funny household were your parents funny we were comedy fans like i can remember being really small i must have been really small when they started showing monty python on pbs Uh, in the u.s and it was everyone got to stay up the whole family got to stay up and watch it every week and then pbs they'll show anything english they'll show benny hill on pbs as Mm. equal to Monty Python. Right. <laughs> it's just like Interesting. ladies in bikinis. Yeah. Um, and you would watch both those funny. things? Yeah. We'd watch anything. Um, right. Yeah. So that stuff and then Saturday Night Live started in 1975. So I'm born in 1970. So watching it firsthand, probably not until 82 or something. But yeah. somehow I have a knowledge of all those early shows. What were your shows then? Was it Monty Python? Was it? Yes. I it's quite my... an acquired taste, especially for a kid. Yes. It's quite it, peculiar it's a, stuff, yeah. even now. But I did really, really love it. As an older kid, would we also watch Faulty Towers? And how sort of active were you about pursuing that as a kid? As a kid, there wasn't, there weren't improv classes or things like that. Now your kids can do that if they want to. So you like find a youth theatre or? I just, I think I did like play in school. Uh, We would do one straight play and one musical a year. Okay. And uh, my greatest play triumph was I played Dr. Van Helsing. In Dracula. Magnificent. Yes. Musical or just a just straight a play? play? Wow. And um, How did you land the role of Van Helsing? I was friends with the director. Okay. The director was a slightly older lesbian woman that I used to hang around with. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Friend of mine. And uh, we said, yeah, it's enough to be a guy. Dr. Van Helsing can be a, a woman. Years ahead of before. Time. Dr. Yeah, way ahead Years of the car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did your parents make of you hanging out with theatre types? And- uh, they were very, very welcoming of it. Uh, we, I, I loved the fact that growing up that my house was a house that people would come to and hang out. And it was, it was okay. sort of just a parade of gays. Right. Just a, just a early pride parade. And were they okay with that? Yeah. Yeah, it was fine. Would they have been okay with you being gay? Well, I mean, they would have had to eventually. Oh, of course. I have to think at some point they must have figured, they, they must, must have, have just been like, well, here it comes. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was just gays and lesbians. Right. Because the theatre is full of gays and lesbians. Well, yeah, you know, I, th- I heard, um, to- I think I heard like Tony Randall talking about this once or something that when he was young, that uh, if you were gay, you went into the theatre because you were accepted there. And therefore, a lot of people who were, were, were there solely because they were gay, that maybe they weren't that talented or really belonged there. Right. <laughs> so yes. like you had like a lot of just random people. And it was still kind of like that. Oh, Ian McKellen was saying, yeah, that's part of what 
he thinks lured him in. Yeah, that it would be all right. There. Might be somebody to have a snog with. Yeah, apart from anything else. Yeah. yeah, but that was a community that you were attracted to. Yes, right. You went to University of Virginia. Yes, and got a BA in drama. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. What did you imagine you might do with your useful degree? <laughs> I, I, I do use too, it. Incidentally. You I do? Use, I, I study playwriting. So I use sure. my degree. Okay. Uh, technically. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think. And what be- might you do with that degree? What were, they, what were they training people to do? Well, they were training people to be actors, okay. um, to be playwrights, hopefully, to be directors at like the regional theater level. That kind of program was very academic. It wasn't like they were gearing you up to go to Hollywood. But are you thinking then that's where I'm going? I think, yeah, I think then I still was going like, and after this, Saturday Night Live. Right. Somehow. To be a writer or a performer? Nobody plans to be a writer. Everyone wants to. That can't be true. No, when you, when you, you're like, no, I'm going to be on it. Okay. I'm going to be on it. Right. Obviously. So when did you first fall into improv? When did that first become a thing for you? I somehow knew I had read books about Saturday Night Live. Uh, uh-huh. And I knew that those people had So come. this was all very Saturday Night Live based, your life yeah, at this time. It was all yes. about how do I get into Saturday it Night Live? It sort of, in many ways, was. Right. Um, but I think it, that's not unusual because it was such a big deal. And so I had read a book. I think the book is maybe called Saturday Night, I think. And uh, but I had read about those people and I knew that they had come from Second City. Almost all of them had come from either Toronto uh-huh. or Chicago. And so when I was done um, studying a girl that I went to school with, we decided that we would move to Chicago. She wanted to pursue acting and I wanted to try to study at the Second City. Okay. So we moved there. I mean, we do have improv in the UK and there, there's, yeah. there's the comedy store players and they do all that, but it's not, it's a thing you can study here. It's like you can go and you can take classes. And mm-hmm. did you know you'd be good at it or did that not matter? Did I, you just... I, th- I thought I would. Okay. I don't remember why I thought I would. So but... Did you know what it was? I think I knew from acting exercises uh, and from, yeah, whatever I had studied about Gilda and Belushi and John Candy, I I thought I kind of Mm. knew what it was, Um, but there are all kinds of forms of it. And in Chicago, it really was a lifestyle. You could fully immerse yourself in that world. This is the bit that I don't think in the the UK we have any equivalent to. Obviously, some people are going to be better at it than others. You're going to have a natural predisposition predisposition to it but is it like a skill set that you can learn like playing the piano you might not necessarily have an instinct for it but Mm -hmm. you can learn sort of how to do it yes i think it's sort of like dance maybe whereas like you can learn it Uh and then some people are going to learn it faster and some people are going to be built for it Uh uh-huh and you met your husband there and my husband jeff was the piano player accompanist at improv Olympic, okay. and eventually uh, at Second City, he went on to be the music one of the musical directors, and and then to direct shows there. He has a very uh, a, a truly unique skill of there's only a handful of people in the world that can do it where they can are good at scoring improv shows as they happen. So he would score them, and he's sort of fully a player in the thing because you know he's bringing back motifs of music. Especially if he was working with less experienced improvisers, he would kind of bring the music back first and they would realize, oh, yeah, we should go back to that other scene. I see. And he would help them with their edits. Right. He's like, dun, 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 dun. Like, it's just like, you're done that scene now. Yeah. And so uh, I was remember thinking, you know, oh, that guy's That's a genius. extraordinary yeah. talent. Yeah. He's extremely talented. Was that what first drew you to him? Yeah. And he looked like a young Anthony Hopkins at the time. So, again, right. yeah, large round eyes. Yeah. And you've been together since then. Yeah. That's a long time. In, yes. in, in showbiz years, that's like since a century. 1994. 
that's great. Yeah. And you work together all the time. A, a lot. Yes. We work together a lot. I We work together at Second City. And I remember at the time when I was on the main stage and he was slated to direct the next main stage show. And the, our improv integrity was so strong at the time that I thought, well, I'm going to have to leave because it's not going to be fair to the ensemble of my boyfriend is the director. So... Okay, this is what's the right thing to do. I'm going to try to get a writing job at Saturday Night Live, and wow. that's how we had so much improv integrity. You really did. <laughs> to what end? To what, well, it got me out of it got me out of Chicago. I I wrote to, or probably I didn't even probably have email then. I probably called Adam McKay. So uh, that's that's why writers. you did it. Yeah. I was like, well, it's time. It's definitely time because that's going to be a because problem. Because it would be prof- <laughs> it would the be. professional ethics wouldn't would allow be, you exactly. to exactly. That's extraordinary. <laughs> Professional ethics. Because what? Yes, he gave you well, more to do. What if he puts or? my scale? Yeah, what if I'm in the show more than somebody else? That's going to be a problem. Wow, <laughs> that's that's extraordinary. How many choices in my life I've made for comedy ethics? Yeah, more than the, to many, many. So you will just to to not compromise yourself. Yes. You tried to get a job. I, I said, can I get a job? Because SNL had come through. They had scouted performers. They had seen me on the stage and shown no interest okay. as a performer. But I emailed maybe. I, did we have, when did we have email? 1994 we had email? Yeah, we had to like, just maybe. you had to like plug it into your television. Yeah. And uh, Adam McKay and said, yeah, are you looking? And, and so I wrote a submission packet and sent it to Adam because he was the head writer. Do you remember what you wrote? I bet I do. And none of it holds up. Because I remember now having read hundreds and hundreds of those packets as on the, from the other side. Yeah. You're looking for just any any sliver of anything that is funny. Uh, I wrote something that was like a was – so, it was something about Bill Cosby for Jell-O pudding. But it was before – and it was something about a couple that wanted to uh, adopt a baby – and it was like a very, a very privileged couple wanted to adopt a baby, but raise it like a dog uh, because they were allergic to dogs. But they were trying to make their case that their dog would live better than most babies. Okay, Yeah. Uh, and there was some Bill Clinton sketch because he was president at the time. And uh, that's all I remember. And so you, these were all just written on spec for the purposes yes. of this. Yes. They were not usable. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and what happens? They so they but they were use they were close enough, and I think so much of all that stuff is somebody vouching for you that they have worked with you. And so Adam said, "Yeah, we should bring her." And they got flown out to New York, and I met. They flew you out. They flew me out oh, to so New York. You must be thinking this is going okay. Yeah, I was like, yeah. okay, yeah. And uh, and he, and I thought, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a woman, and they probably need more of those. Oh, right. Uh, couldn't right. hurt. Right, um, sure. And uh, so I met with Adam, who was like, sure, you know, he just knew th- when you're you're just happy to have someone around who has the same sensibility as you and isn't a pain. You uh-huh. know? And then I and had to go and have a meeting with Lauren Michaels, right. which is the strangest, scariest meeting for. Again, we've already established how. Because yeah. you've been watching this show forever. <laughs> important it was. Yeah. And uh, I, ca- I, I can't even quite take myself back to a time when I didn't know. Now I feel like I know Lauren so well. Right. I was like, oh, right. You have to remember, you know, the first 50 times you meet him, you're just out, you're out of your body. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's the comedy god. He's, he is. Yeah. Yeah. And he is so, he is, um, he doesn't give you a lot on the first meeting. He's right. polite and stuff, but he's just like, so you're from, and I've been told, <laughs> I've been told, everyone said like, the only thing, like, just don't, don't finish his sentences and don't like talk over him. And I went in there first, he's like, so you're from, and I was like. Pennsylvania and he was like Chicago I was like Chicago yeah uh, and it just was the most tense uh 
In How a, long did that meeting last? In re, in reality, probably four to five minutes. Because so, he's just going, oh, can like, we bear to have her around? Yeah, exactly. It's okay. all, it's just like, is she nuts? <laughs> and yeah. is she on drugs? And, and could she function? And yeah. But for you, this is it means so much. Yeah. I, I, do you think you'd already got the job? Do you think he was just the sort of rubber stamp? I think it must have, yeah, I think they, if they didn't, yeah, I think he's the final step. Yeah. Okay. Like if Adam had not, had not wanted me right. to work there, he wouldn't have sent me right. all the way through. So how quickly do they say to you, we, we, we want you to do it? Lorne is, he's notoriously bad. In a meeting like that, he'll technically hire you, but he won't, he'll phrase it in a way that you cannot tell. Right. That you've been hired. But I think right. in hindsight, too, I think it's because after years and years and years and years of making people's dreams come true, he doesn't really like the part oh. <laughs> where you're like, oh, my God, thank you so much. I see. Can I hug you? And so he's tr- trying to set it up in a way that you don't do that. I can imagine because that's probably quite the, I get the responsibility it now. of that moment for that other human being. Yes, yeah. I really understand it now. Well, now you've been on the other side of I've it, I've been right? on the other side of it. Yeah. And it's sometimes you're just like, it's okay. Just, How do you handle it? Well, it depends. You know, we saw those. I wept last night for these Broadway yeah, children because yeah. they really are like children to me. But um, but it depends on the on the situation and the and the workplace. And I I can feel that now. Sometimes we're like, no, no, it's good. Yeah. So you'll just start Thursday. Yeah. Sometimes you can't quite absorb the amount of gratitude. Yes, yeah, sure. Coming at you, of course. So then, what do you feel like when you realize when you figure out that that's what he means? I was overwhelmed because it. I my boyfriend was in Chicago and I was going to have to pick up and move, move right? in two weeks. And I remember I went downstairs and I called, I think from an actual physical payphone, I called Amy Poehler, who was already had moved to New York with the Upright Citizens Brigade, and I called her and I said, I think I got the job, uh-huh. and I was, and I started crying and I was like, I'm about to move, and I don't know. And then and I said, like, and they're going to pay me $75,000 a year. And Amy just laughed. She's like, ah. <laughs> She's like, it was the most money any of us has ever made. Right, sure. And she was like, it's going to be fine. Like, she was, you know, uh, mostly just heard the money. And was like, yes, we're all getting up and over. Yeah. And what did Jeff say? Uh, he was sweet. He was, you know, happy. He's supportive in that way. And then for, so for that first year or two, uh, we would just, I would go back to Chicago every break okay. and travel back and forth. So you weren't married yet? No, we didn't get married. We kind of, I think we were very set and knew we would get married, but we didn't get married until 2001. Right. So do you remember your first day at work there? I remember early days. I remember little mistakes like um, uh, early on I pitched a something like, oh, maybe like this could be a Clinton sketch, sort of not realizing like, oh, the cold open of the show where the president talks is not really left to the person whose first week it is. You oh, know, they're like, oh, you're writing a cold open hot shot. And I was like, um, oh, OK. So uh, just feeling out the uh, the the gentle hazing and trying to get the lay of the land. But was it a friendly place to be? It was OK. It was OK. But it also, you know, it was the big time in a way that it, you weren't coddled. Which I kind of prefer. Sink or swim. Sink or swim. Yeah. Every week you have a new opportunity to sink or swim. And so the first time they, one of your sketches gets read out loud. And when you're new, it's probably going to be number 50 in the packet out of 60. Right. And it's going to be Because you're bum and your yes. knuckles go you're away. <laughs> and, yeah. you, and you wish there was some sort of uh, G.I. Jane bell you could ring to just give up. So Wait, three been, pages and you'd be like, never mind, never mind. Oh, so it's been read round in a circle yeah. to see if anyone... Yeah, see if anyone laughs. see and if the cat likes it out. So your heart is literally in your mouth and you're yeah. thinking, laugh, you fuckers. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's trial by fire. Wow. And then, and I was did feel that whenever the times I can count on my hand the number of times I had something that I felt really killed uh, at that table, and it was always a greater high than if it killed on the air because it just was a really um, tough proving ground. Yeah. So who was on? Who was performing on the show then? Uh, So when I started, the cast was. I saw it a couple years ago. I was on. Uh, there was some special that was like SNL in the '90s, and I was like, "Oh shit, I'm on that one!" Like I technically. Right. Uh, when did you start? What year? Are we I started '97. Okay. Who was there? Molly was there. Anna Gasteyer, Sherry O'Terry, uh, Jim Brewer, Will Ferrell, Tracy Morgan, uh, Norm Macdonald was the Weekend Update host. Right. Colin Quinn was there. So, what was it particularly about? Was it the kind of the the satirical side of Saturday Night Live that particularly appealed was it the truth to power thing or yeah the truth to power thing is uh is appealing especially when it's new to you you know yeah. and then you get yeah. a little older and you're like oh that person has kids or whatever that you know oh uh, right you go overshoot it ine- right. inevitably yeah um you forget that they can hear you kind of thing but mm. um but yes truth to power for sure um responding to the immediacy of the week mm. uh is there any part of you that thinks you, right now when there's so much news and so much to talk about, you'd love to be there or are you glad to be out of it? I'm glad to be out of it. I feel right. relieved because the culture is so ugly and the political climate is so ugly yeah. that it's, um, you know, we would always have everybody on because you could, you know, you'd have like Bush Sr. would come do a thing with Dana Carvey before I worked there. You know, it was, it just, but it's so truly ugly now that I don't... Mm. Yes, it feels rather quaint to think back to that now. Yes. You must have met our your now president back in the New York scene then, didn't you? Yes. He yes. must have been around. He was around. He um <laughs> he was a host of SNL at one oh, time. Right. And uh I told the story but it was a funny interaction was uh Jimmy Fallon and I by that time we were the hosts of Weekend Update and um we just did that we're gonna do the silliest little bit. Uh again, he was a harmless New York He was a buffoon. Buffoon. Yeah. At the time. Of course. Um and uh we were starting the uh I mean he was in Pizza Hut commercials, mm. guys. Uh we were starting the weekend update was just joke we had like columns and a and I had like a gown and a pageant thing and a long wig and we were like, it's no, it's weekend Trump date and we started it and then just like what are we doing and started over. So we were in these rehearsing in these get-ups with, like, the ugly columns and I had some tardy, like, um, pageanty gown on and ton of, and Trump walked out on the floor and was like, you look good like that. You should dress like that more often. Jesus. And I remember thinking, fuck you. But I probably said, oh, thank you. Um, so you were writing That jokes. is the definition of a backdoor brag, by the way. <laughs> what I'm saying was I looked pretty good, like, page- pageant good. I looked pretty good and the president noticed. And the president was like... Maybe I'll pay her a hundred thousand. No, he wasn't. Um, and the other weird, weird thing that I have in common with with the president is um, that we sh- uh, shared a, a baby nurse. Oh, a, a lovely Irish woman took care of my daughter when I was working when she was born, first born, and then went right to them to them next. Wow, and that's a strange little New York thing. That is, yeah. But so you were writing jokes for this sort of New York buffoon at the time. Yeah. When he was on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then quite quickly you become, and it's, all, it's always, this is like the first thing that's ever said about you, the first female head writer of Saturday yes. Night Live. And sometimes they forget to say 
uh, head writer, and they say like first female writer, or just right, like right, they, right. or they say like, I don't know. Yeah, but it's yeah. Did that suit you? Did you like the responsibility? Yeah, I, it did suit me. I think in that that job is in part a, ma- a managerial job. It's not. It doesn't, oh, is it? I, right. I mean, I did very well. I got a lot of stuff on the show, but uh, you know, it doesn't have to be the. F- funniest uh writer it has to be the person who can help you so there's an administrative role within and there's a and there's an editorial there's like like, i see what you're trying to do can i help you do it better i see i'm telling you you could lose page four kind of thing so So you're script editing other people's stuff you're trying to but the funny thing is snl there aren't really any rules and so if someone is really like i don't want to man i want to do it my way you're like okay (laughs) You can't really wrangle anyone too much. Um, but – and I think that – so, you know, I, I had a good temperament for that. Seth Meyers did it for a long time after me. He's right. got that same temperament. Like right. he's, a, he's a great I writer, but he's yeah. also yeah. a great um, editor of your writing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you'd have to encourage people and you'd have to – You'd have to take – even if it's a sketch you hated, you had to try to improve it without, you know – uh, shaming the person yeah. or, or changing the DNA of what the thing And do you was. quite enjoy that part of that job? I, I, I didn't. I, after a while, it wore me out. But Okay. Because uh, after a while, you're like, I don't know. I don't even like this character, but okay. But I've, and I've written a sketch that's better. Yeah, or, or not. Or like the guilt that you didn't, that you didn't uh, knock it out of the box. Right. And are you are you the one that's choosing what goes on? You get week? a say. You get to go in this meeting after the 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 table read and uh, with the producers and, and have a say. Okay. Uh, but it's ultimately Lorne and then it's the host's opinion, you know, what sometimes they just like the accent they're doing or. Oh, so the host I, gets to. Host gets a little bit of a say. Yeah. Really? Right. Yeah. So the host is part of that first selection yes, meeting too. for sure. Right. Okay. Yeah. So then how do how you. How have you not hosted? I don't know. Well, we'll do get you on tell that. me. We'll get on it. Yeah. So how do you end up in front of the cameras? Um, uh, Colin Quinn was the host of Weekend Update and they wanted to do it the next season. They wanted to change it. And um, through the great benefit of their laziness, they sort of were like, well, who's here already? Literally just looking around the room going, looking around who the can room. do it? I think so. And and no, I'm not the first person to benefit from that laziness. I think that's how Conan O'Brien got his job. Really? <laughs> um, so all these people in Second City and the groundlings who are all desperately kind of trying to get notice. Yeah, well, if they, <coughs> Excuse me. yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's not great. And, and really, you just have to be in the room. Just be in the room. So you didn't do the audition process at all? Well, I, I did do a test process for Update okay. um, with uh, several of the pairings of people from the show, a few people from outside the show. Uh, but I think Lauren had it, the idea that I could do it with Jimmy Fallon and that I would be sort of the, you know, like adult, more stern I figure see. and he could be silly and that it might work as a pairing. And are you thinking, yes, finally. Yeah, I think I was. Oh, I was you like, were. Yeah, finally, right? And then we did these tests, and it was not immediately offered. Um, and in typical kind of SNL weirdness fashion, I, as a head writer, I was called this after the day of the test. I said, "Okay, we're all we're having dinner at the Palm. Come down. We're talking about it." And I think I'm like, "Oh my gosh, they're they're calling me down to tell me that I got there." And then no, I got down there, and it was just a meeting where they just openly discussed in front of me the <laughs> the merits of every candidate. I was like, "Oh wait, you that's be- quite a weird position." So you're 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 in a really senior position on the show, yeah, and you're also auditioning for the show at the same time. Yes, and other people will decide whether you get to yes. add to your workload or not. Yes, and I suppose if you were a monster, you could say like, "Guys, I'm telling you, it's me." I suppose you could. But that's seemed untoward. I'm, a, I'm presuming it's a relatively ego-free environment. Uh, I mean, it sounds quite collective. 
Is that is that really no, naive I of me? I wouldn't say it's, it's ego free. It's full of massive egos. It's a mix. Some people are team players and some people okay. have big egos. Uh, and is there any sense that you last longer if you don't? Or I think you last longer in your career, ultimately, if you don't. In life, you, sure. Yeah, and you might, like, you might burn brighter there for a, a year or okay. two, but you want to be Will Ferrell. You want to be yeah, right, right. just a prince of a human being. Yeah. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So you do make it on screen yeah, and you're now performing on Saturday Night Live, which presumably means you are now, uh, uh, you're now being recognised in the street. You're being, how does all that sit with you? It, it takes, a, I remember Lauren saying that you, know, people, you have to be on TV for two years before anyone realises. Okay. And and do you find that to be true? It is sort of true. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. About two years. Yeah. And did you like that? I sort of liked it at first. Yeah. And um, in New York, it's a, it's great because people... Don't really care. They're a little you, bit cool about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's not overwhelming. Mm. I've been other places where you realize sometimes you go somewhere else and you go, oh, this is overwhelming because it's also arbitrary. It's just that you are on TV. It doesn't, they don't care. They don't mm. like you or anything. It's just like you're on TV. Um, that's less pleasant. Does it mean something to your parents though? Are they? Yeah, I think that. Being on TV is it's slightly yeah. shinier than just writing for TV. Yeah, from, I think from so. Where they are it is shinier than writing for TV. And you know what? We, you're very polite not to uh, have asked about it, but I sort of forgot that. Also, I think for them, like, you know, I had this thing happen to me when I was a kid where this, I have this scar on my face okay. that was a, 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 a I've talked about this a little bit in Bossy Pants, so I just pass them. But it's just like um, a, a, a insane crime when I was a kid, just a lunatic, just a slashing. Right. And so I have to think that for them, for me to be on TV, and that was like kind of a, it had to be sort of a shoulders down right, moment right. of like, oh yeah, it all it was fine. Like because right. if you have a kid, and I think also if that kid's a girl, you're like, oh, how is this going to impact? Sure, yeah, every part of her yeah. life, you know. Um, so I think they, Are they worried about you. Do you think? I mean, I have to assume that they did. They didn't express they never, it. They outwardly. never made you feel that. No. They? So were they delighted? Were they? I mean, they were delighted. I was on did, TV for sure. Did they exhibit that pride, <laughs> or are they a bit more um, Presbyterian? Yeah, about it? I think just like you know, in like you know, talk to their dentist about it. Just yeah. like, you know, around you know, yeah, around sure. town. Yeah. Nothing inappropriate. Right. Yeah. And was the performing or the writing giving you more satisfaction by this stage? Well, it's nice to do both. Okay. That's the best. Because you get the perks of being known and recognized and having someone fix your hair up and give you clothes and make right. you look better. Right. But then you still have control over what you're saying and you to contribute to how much you are or aren't on the show. And wh- how much were you performing on the show that you weren't writing or were you writing everything that you were doing? I would write jokes and also we had two or three people that write, we would all write jokes for the segment together. And then we would okay. take, so we would take, we would take jokes from a lot of places and then, but you would get to go and on Friday night, we would read a huge packet of jokes that we would all put together right. and pick which ones we liked. Um, you know, update is a really lucky segment in that way that you really have the most control over. So you're on that show for 
how many years? Uh, I was on update for five years. Right. Right. So maybe it was eight years that I was there. Okay. Yeah. So how do you decide to move on? I mean, how do you do that? I got married and then I had my older daughter and I had also, Lauren had encouraged me to take sort of a development deal on the side. So yeah, so then I tried to, I wrote a pilot for NBC. They rejected it at first. I kind of retooled it and it ended up being the pilot for 30 Rock. And so I left my, I did one season after my daughter was born and I did feel like um, a little bit like, what am I doing here? Right. I see. Yeah. So you write, you create 30 Rock, which is about the head writer yes. of a sketch show and it for was, NBC. In its first, in my defense, in its uh, <laughs> first incarnation, it was uh, about a woman working at a, a cable news program. And it was like a, a, a woman running a news program and she had been saddled with a kind of Bill O'Reilly type blowhard anchor. Uh, yeah, okay. and that, and that was Which it. may or may not have been played by Alec Baldwin. It was, met, you know, intended for Oh, that was the idea. Alec. That was right. the idea. Right. And I took it to Kevin Riley, who was at NBC at the time, and he's like, you know, this is the, <laughs> the news is so crazy these days. It, it might be hard, you know, because this is post 9-11 era. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, right, right. And, um, you know, write more what you know. And I was like, oh, I don't want to write about, con- like, it's so lame to, like, write about comedy writing. And, uh, but I took it back and, and then... Once I sort of thought, well, if it is a comedy show, then you could have this Tracy Jordan character and then you would have this kind of triangle of three very different people that would right. give you stories and different points of view on almost any topic. Right. Uh, they would triangulate in different ways. So is it misleading to think that Liz Lemon is autobiographical at it's, all? It's relatively autobiographical. It's sort of, a, I say it's a sliding doors version of me. Right. I've never found a little more of a outside life outside of work. Right, right, yes. Maybe this isn't true of here, uh, of the US, but in the UK there's there's an idea that commissioners don't like shows about shows, don't like actors telling stories about actors. Is that not true? That audiences don't like it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We had a... We had a niche audience from Jump and we, we tried to always have the stories be much more about their lives and their dynamics than mm, the actual sure. show. But it was actually when you made it a show about a show that it got commissioned rather than... Oh, yeah. Oh, you mean when you're selling it? Yeah. Yeah, no, they told me to... They sort of said, no, go make it go make it more close to okay. home. And right. I'm like, oh, okay. I thought it was corny to do that, but it yeah. ended up working out. For, for that kind of network sitcom, it's a lot of episodes you have to produce every year. Yeah. You know who came to, who came to talk to me about this one time was David Cameron. Uh, what? The yeah. former prime minister of the UK, David yes. Cameron. David Cameron. And this was after... Well, he was developing a show? He... I had the strange thing. We were doing, we had, 30 Rock had ended and we were working uh, on this, the show. It was a new show at the time, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And and I got this call saying, David Cameron is going to be at NBC at Rockefeller Plaza and he would love to meet you. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't. Did you even know who he was? I mean, yeah, I knew, yeah, I knew who he okay. was. And, uh, and I thought, well, I don't. I'm not on a show anymore, so I have to get a pit crew to come reassemble me as a human woman because I'm fully (laughs) writing. I was like, kitchen witch. Uh, And so I got like clothed and assembled and went down there to meet him. And he was very nice. And what he wanted to talk to me about was, would you would you ever come to? He said, you know, we had um, Steve Levitan come to the UK and talk to some of our showrunners. I would love just our shows are, are some of the best things we produce. We make great television in England. I just want you to come and convince our showrunners that to make that they can't just make six episodes of things and that they should make like you guys 200 episodes. And and I sort of said, well, you know, we we actually are all very jealous of the model yeah. <laughs> of where you make yeah. Ricky made 13 
of the episodes office, yeah. of the office and you know Greg Daniels and Steve Carell made like a thousand yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Ricky gets all the money. Yeah. And so I sort of said, I don't, I can't because we want to do it your way. What but an extraordinary he wanted, thing he had, for David Cameron to spend his time doing. Isn't that crazy? And, uh, and Steve Levitan had taken a trip over to go wow. to 10 Downing Street, I guess, and talk to, I don't know, sure talk to real at Ricky. I don't know. Who was wow. he talking to? <laughs> you see, if David Cameron had spent less time on that and more time on not sending our country off a cliff edge. Anyway, but these are massive, massive mountains of work that you have to do every year. It was I mean, so 22 much 22 episodes is a lot. 22 episodes of that show in particular, that show was so dense. It, had, yeah. it always had three stories. It was sure. shot on film, not even on, on video. Shot was on it? film. Yeah. Film. And Just to make your day even more difficult. Yeah. And at the time, you know, since now they've gotten the film. Well, I think also because Alec was like, on some level, I was like, I'm a movie star. I work on film. Right. I will I will look better on film. And I was like, whatever will make him look better will help me too. Did you do all seven seasons on film? Yes. I think wow. so. I think so. But with that many episodes to, to, to have to turn around. Yes. You, how often would you go, I don't know what I don't know what else to um, do with these characters? Well well we would hit seasons, you know, five, six, someone would pitch something that was absolutely batshit. And right. then you'd say, we did it already. You know, it could be wow. anything like, what if he turns into a ghost and eats a car? And you'd be like, shit, we did that in Ghost Car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, those characters were very fertile. But there was so many times where we just we just worked, you know. 70, 80, I don't know, we just worked all the time. And we yeah. all had young kids, Robert, yeah. so we all had babies. Yeah. I mean, somebody you knew what you were getting into. I mean, you you I wanted to cast yourself I, I in the lead I wanted to be in a role. show, but I was so stupid. I was coming from Saturday Night Live where the show was live. Uh-huh. And you would go in the afternoon and rehearse, and then it was live, and you, you know. I uh, see. And then I, I did cry when we uh, did the pilot. We went to shoot the pilot, and I realized what a single camera day was like because I'd also only ever been in one movie so I didn't I even see. have a sense of what film days were when you were number one long, on the call long, sheet yeah. and I just was like you know I'd wanted to leave Saturday Night Live to spend more time with my daughter and then I was like what have I done sure it was terrible yeah it was devastating I don't know what we were doing I told, I worked with John Regi last year oh the yeah. best oh yeah he, camping he was one of your yeah. writers yeah, yeah. And, and he was talking about how you would just all go back to your apartment yeah so you would because you were that's the thing you weren't just show running it you were also in just about every scene yeah so you'd film all day connective tissue yeah, I would film yeah. all day and then everyone would head back to your apartment and the writers would work all night yeah you'd put your baby down yeah she'd wake up in the morning and there was one time when we were working and and uh with like a half group half the staff and uh I'd put Alice to bed and we were working and Robert and I were running it and we both seemed like we were thinking and we both had fallen asleep. And I don't know how long they let us sleep, but we kind of, okay, I was like, it could have been two minutes. It could have been 40 minutes while they just sat there flipping us off. Uh, and we were like, oh, we're, oh, we're both asleep. Okay. And we just would keep doing that. Um, so on one level, are you thinking, please don't renew us for another season. I can't, I can't keep going. Well, I knew I had to work and we were enjoying what we were doing, but right. the lifestyle was absolutely brutal um i think robert was more worried because he had moved his whole family from california back to new york and and he was he's, he talks a lot about how he was always sweating like the pickup for the back nine episodes the first season and i right. i was again uh, i refer to myself as like baby's day out that old john hughes movie where the baby's just walking and an anvil misses it and, i see right. and i was kind of foolish just, that way you're quite in the moment are you? yeah with it. and just sort of like well if, if we don't if they cancel it they cancel it it's out of our control but but uh, 
there was also this, there was a drama, an Aaron Sorkin drama at the same time about a late night show on the same oh, network. Oh, yes, called, Studio 60 on yes. the Sunset Strip. I and remember. I remember they had bought my pilot and then and they kind of called me when they bought there and like, yeah, we have bad news. Like, this is probably going to blow you out of the water. Because that was on NBC too. Yes. Wow. And it was very expensive and it was very right. high end. And, and, um, and that was where every part of my SNL, like, we'll see. Like my competitive, like oh, really? I was like that kind of thrilled me and fueled me for did months. It, so it that, really did. You, that, all of us, yeah. That didn't defeat you in any way. That you just that no, just made that, you think, right? Let's fight. That really f- like fueled the fire. I see. Yeah. Okay. No, I think I think I've got my timing right. You're just about to start season three, are you? And suddenly, yeah. John McCain announces his running mate for yes. the 2008 yes, summer uh, 2000 presidential election eight. is somebody called Sarah Palin. Had <laughs> yes. you ever heard of her before? No, none of us had. No, she was a total she was a, stranger to the world. She was the governor of Alaska. Sure. Right. How did you first become aware of her? I was in, I ha, we have a little house on Fire Island and I was on Fire Island um, and saw the cover of the Times with her picture on it and my husband said, you that she looks like you right and i was like no i don't think so and this was august i suppose the okay. convention i said no 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 i don't think so and then um it just started this kind of strange snowballing where i talked to lauren on the phone because we would talk a lot on the phone right. 30 rock stuff at the time and he would say like yeah i was uh by the way my doorman says uh you should play her and uh he just he tells a story that he his doorman said like wow what a, how crazy is that tina fey right what a blessing and he's like well she's not really on the show anymore sure. he's like still what a, and they said he walked out his building and then turned the corner and ran into Robert De Niro, who said, wow, Sarah Palin looks just like Tina Fey. Wow, How about that? And he's like, well, she's not on the show anymore. He's like, and he realized, like, no one, one, no one knew I wasn't on the show anymore. No one cared. They just were like, that's sweet. That, 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 that They look alike. Yeah. And that's happened more and more since then where people, where the world has decided, you know, they want an outside person to play. Yes. A political you, figure. Yes, because that's happening all the time now. But, yeah. but back then, you, you once you left the show, you left the show. So that was a bit more unusual to get called back. It was it? a little unusual. Yeah. Yeah. And did they approach you or did you? Well, it was this funny thing because it was, you know, I was sort of in my own world being like, I don't even know if I want to do it. I mean, like they hadn't asked me to do it. And yeah. you, guess what? Any any of them could have done it. Maya could have done it. Kristen Wiig could have right, done it. Like right. it did not need to be me. I presumably also... The last thing you need right now is more work. Y- y- sure. Because you're right. already running your own show you're and drowning, you're in every yeah. scene. And yes. Yeah. But it was at that time, I think I just was a glutton for punishment. Right. Like, yeah, right. we should probably do it then. Yeah. And so get right up in, again, typical SNL fashion, it was the week of their season premiere. And still it kept being talked about, but Lauren hadn't actually asked me if I wanted to do it. Right. And I, had, I was acting like he had. Yeah. And then I think it was Thursday or Friday that he just called and said, well, come over. There's a piece and see if you want to do it. And so, yeah, so I ended up going over there. And Do you think that it. you were the nail in her political coffin? Um, well, I think she's the nail in her own coffin ultimately. Okay. Yeah, sure. yeah. But so. I think I think it sh- shined a light on something because she was she came out of that convention a real shining star, and, mm, yes, and quite. we went into it wanting to make sure that we were very fair that we weren't just swinging throwing punches and that was like kind of focus on what seemed true about the situation. But it is important to you and do something like that to 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 add to the conversation, not just to you're not just going for gags. Y- yes, and to add to it, but also to be to be fair at. At our core, and I think that's where all of the 
Second City training and also all of the thing I was talking about, even like the Philadelphia thing of like, I'm not just going to go with the flow of like, okay, you you love her, you hate her. Let me think with my own mind of what do I think about her? Think as an independent. Yes. Right. And then how conflicted were you when Sarah Palin then wanted to come on the show? I didn't want him to have her on and I didn't want to be in a two shot with her. Right. Um, Because I just was because I just said, well, then that's what they'll show when I die. (laughs) <laughs> when I die, that's what they'll show in the Emmys. That's very precious. And they of you. still might, <laughs> but they'll have to they'll have to splice it. So you did not appear in a two shot? No. I think we passed each other quickly. I just thought it's for the lifespan of those kind of impressions. Usually that happens over the course of three years, right? Someone does an impersonation of the person. And then the, in a couple years later, the person's like, I'll come do it with you. And then like, there's, it was this condensed version of this lifespan. And, and I didn't want to do it, uh, but I understood that it's also a ratings. It's what the audience want to see. It's what the audience wanted to see. But I guess if you've been very careful to, to sort of police the satire of what you're doing, yeah. it, it inevitably will, she ends up looking like she's in on the joke, I guess. Yeah, it's and and it's certainly something they they butted up against later with Trump of sure. like poor Jimmy. That was sort of business as usual that oh, yes, you, you wouldn't yes, think yes, like, yes. oh, you can't have a presidential candidate on your talk show. But the world had changed and he has, mm-hmm. you know, since very much realized that. And and so it was it was the beginning of those kinds of things of like, I have to I really want to think about the. Right. I don't know, the optics of this. That's but, interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because just this morning I watched the the I think that it's the final sketch you did, which is with John McCain. Yes, that was because him I I loved because right. he had hosted and he was a you know he was a, a man who really dedicated his life yes. to service. But uh, he looks in that moment like a man who's kind of given up. And he thinks, I think you know he, what we might as well be on the joke uh, yeah. because. Uh, and he was a friend of the show, and you know, and that's it. You know, she came. The family was uh, treated beautifully. It was all. Fine, I think. Uh, but yeah, it was easier with Senator McCain. Mm. But but even in that moment, are you are you conflicted about allowing him to kind of come and sell himself? I mean, he's a what, um, if, what if he'd suddenly what I if he'd suddenly won the election and you'd felt I didn't think it was going to influence the election. It did, and it did feel like felt like the the horse it was had like bolted the, hor- the horse had bolted right. from the barn. Yeah, but yeah, that responsibility of how much that show. I don't think that show can really sway people i think you can shine a light you can help them articulate something they're already feeling about a given person Mm -hmm. but i don't know that you can well i don't know people say you know did the apprentice get trump elected Mm. i don't know i used to i used to watch and enjoy laughing at the show the apprentice and Uh i watched it and it never occurred to me like this guy's amazing he should be the president of our country (laughs) (laughs) no no but I suppose it's in there, isn't it? But the, you, you can't blame the producers of The Apprentice for no, that. No, I, I don't think you can. Yeah. Unless they are sitting on some killer tape. There's probably some other stuff. Yeah. They, yeah. They've done. And then 2015, yeah. you start a new show. Yeah. The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah. But you're not starring in it this time. No. Is that because you're thinking that's that's a young person's game? A little bit. And I, right. you know, I had a second daughter at this point. Right. And she was born in the for the final season of 30 Rock. And so I wanted, yeah, I wanted to not be in the chair at right. 5.30. Could you see Could you see yourself starring in someone else's show or would you not be able to relinquish that um, that, that control? I, mm, I don't think I would be able to, unless it was somebody I really knew. Like if mm. if it was Reggie or someone and, right. and we we're going to, he was going to let me 
kind of have a say in what I wanted to do. But do you think you wouldn't be able to resist turning up at the writer's room? And Yeah, I just feel like for me, I'm not a good enough actor for it to be worth it for them if I'm not also contributing writing wise. Like some actors are such great actors that they make a part more than it is without changing a word of it. And I'm kind of pretty workmanlike as an actor. How do you think that? I just think I am. I just think that, you know, like when you see there's act, there's actors and then there's like actors. Right. You do have a sensational leading lady, as you said, in, in Ellie Kemper. Yes. Do you get a joy in sort of in finding someone and kind of nurturing a career like that? Or is it more transactional? Is it more like we need someone great? There she is. I do take uh, joy in in finding things for people that right. I like. You know, and I think that comes from the SNL writer brain being like, oh, I want to find something for the where the host can shine or where mm. these cast members can get on the air. And um, I like sort of thinking about actors and what their strengths are and what you've never seen them do, what you would like to see them do. Right. Um, I like tailoring stuff for actors, yeah. Mm. Do you feel a sense of duty to uh, find the next generation of talent? I don't know if I think of it as the next generation because I also have had a lot of pleasure writing for people who I admired, you know, getting to work with Carol Kane and stuff. Right. Um, people like that where it's more Andrea Martin, it's more wish fulfillment on my part than necessarily helping the youngsters. Right. But I think you have become a big inspiration. Oh, thanks. Do you, are you comfortable with that? Uh, sure. Sure. That's, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it frustrating that by virtue of your gender, mm-hmm. which is, you know, nothing to do with, you know, that's just what you've got. Yeah. But you're, you're there, therefore, because of what you've done, you're seen as a trailblazer. You're seen as represent, almost representing a movement. And actually you've just, all you've done is been a really, really good at your job. Yeah. <laughs> no, it mostly doesn't bother me. I had a, a, a kind of well-known TV writer come up to me uh, at the Emmys one time and say like, oh, you're, you're, you're such an inspiration to my daughter. You're such a comedy. And in my head, I was like, I could teach you a couple things too, friend. If you yeah. want. But right. I'm glad your daughter likes me. But yeah, yeah. Okay, hot shot. Mm. Um, uh, that's a little, felt a little marginalizing, but I'm sure he meant it in the nicest way. But no, I, I don't mind it. You know, I think... Um, I, I do talk to young women who say that they started improv because they like me and Amy or they started writing. And I, I, that's good. Fine by me. Yeah. I, I don't mind that. Yeah. You've won, I believe it's nine Emmys and three Golden Globes, the Mark Twain Prize for, I mean, a, a whole bunch <laughs> of stuff. Oh, we used to win so much stuff, David. Uh, does that allow you to feel successful? The Emmys are uh, what I Im- imagine heroin is like. It's like that first time. Right. Uh, you, you never get it back right, and then you're right, chasing right. it. Yeah. Um, but that first time saved our show, I think, because oh, it? it was after the first season, nobody expected us. We expected Alec to win. Um, and I don't think he did. I think he lost to Ricky. Okay. And uh, But then the show won. And they just couldn't cancel us because right. we had won. Do you think they would have done otherwise? They might have. Right. Yeah. They might have. Uh, what, what number of Emmy is it just another <laughs> Emmy? How many Emmy are you going, ah, it's another Emmy? Um, six. <laughs> Five, six. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's been a while. There haven't been any. There aren't any new ones. Well, they're, take up, they're big. They take up a lot of space, Yeah, they right? are big, yeah. So what's left? What's still on the bucket list then? Um, I'd love to write a play. Would you be in it? Maybe. I would probably, but I would start with the idea first. I would figure, I would see if it was appropriate. You know okay. what I mean? If the idea was for somebody other than me, that would be fine too. It, it's tricky because there's not much left sure. on the bucket list. I yeah. feel like I've gotten to do all the things that we talked about in the first hour when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I got to do it. So I don't really know. 
And I, I, I feel like I don't want to be doing stuff just to still be in the mix. You know, yeah. it feels like a, there's an th- improv rule of like, when do you enter a scene? Uh, in an, when do you enter an improv scene? And the answer, only correct answer is when needed. Okay. And so I, I don't know uh, quite when to jump back in. Well, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. It's been you. a joy to talk to you. Oh, I'm glad. It's very, very nice to talk to you. David Tennant does a podcast with is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced and edited by James Deacon. Additional production from Chris Skinner, Steve Ackerman, Sarah Camlett, Josh Gibbs, Paul Ruist, Tom Koenig, Joel Freeman and Georgia Tennant. Next time. Tell your men to drop their guns, Ming. Tell your men to drop their guns, Ming. From Flash Gordon. And that has stayed with me ever since. That is, is that still your vocal warm? Yeah, tell your men to drop their guns, Ming. It's not easy to say. It's not. It's a good one. It is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Also from something else. Something rhymes with purple. Susie Dent and Giles Brandreth are here to increase your word power as they discuss amazing facts and stories behind phrases and words. A vexillophile is somebody who isn't keen on... Flags. Oh, how did you know that? You just did. You're so clever. Arenophiles. Okay, well, the word arena comes from sand because the arenas in the Roman amphitheatre were covered with sand to soak up the gladiators' blood. Correct. So, anything to do with that? An arenophile is a sand enthusiast. Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps.